Amen. Lord, that's our heart, and we thank you that you do shower down your blessings upon us. We're so unworthy, the sweet mercy that you've given us. Lord, we pray as we go to this time of the Word tonight, again, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Soften and open our hearts, Lord, to receive from you. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a seat. Turn your Bibles to Numbers 26. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament on Wednesday night. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand because you're going to need one. Especially tonight, it's a pretty long chapter. So get comfortable. Amen? All right. Okay. Well, the book of Numbers, it's interesting because I've told you before that it kind of gets a bad rap because when people think of the book of Numbers, they think all they're going to do is read through a bunch of numbers and names and stuff and, and not understanding that a vast majority of the book of Numbers is really better entitled In the Wilderness because it's about the time that the children of Israel spent wandering in the wilderness after they left Sinai till they get to the land of promise. It it encompasses that 40-year period of time. But there are two times in the book of Numbers where it's appropriate. And tonight's one of them. One of them was back in chapter 2 when the children of Israel were numbered. And then again tonight in chapter 26 when they are are numbered. Now what we see in in these two censuses that we're going to look at, and I'm going to go back and look at the first one, and just to catch some of you up, because the last time we looked at it was about seven months ago. Now, I titled the message tonight, Missing Out on God's Promise. And we're going to see that when the first, the first of the sentences took place, it took place with a, a great deal of promise before them. They were excited, they were blessed, because what had happened? They'd been delivered out of bondage in Egypt. They're now been set free from bondage. They spent a year and then another month, 13 months total, that they've now been out of bondage. And this first census takes place as God orders them and sets them up to head to the land of promise. And if you'll recall, way back in that first uh, census that was taken, there was a couple reasons why. One, he wanted to identify that God had blessed them. Remember, when they went into bondage, there were 70 people that went into bondage. And when they came out of bondage, there was as many as 3 million people. We know there was over 603,000 men over the age of 20 alone. So God had blessed them greatly, and God had His hand on them. But He also speaks about the individual, how He cares about every single person. Now we know, though, that right off the bat, there begins to be rebellion among the children of Israel. They've been delivered out of bondage, and already when Moses is on Mount Sinai, they're making golden calves. You remember that? They're starting to murmur and complain and already starting to look back to Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. And they had completely missed God. And the Lord, again, continued to show His grace. But I want you to see in Numbers chapter 2, don't turn there, but I just want to tell you what happened there, that God gave them divine order. And the divine order that He gave to them was, and this will be a fairly lengthy introduction, so just bear witness with your pastor, all right? But here's what, what I want you to see, because I want to tie all this together. God gave them a way that they were to march, an, an order that they were to be in, and then He would give them an exact way that they were to camp. And those of you who were here seven months ago, remember that everything that is in the Bible is in there for a reason. And every single uh, part of this divine order that God had given was pointing to the cross and pointing to the Savior. And so we see that there is divine order. Our God is a God of order. The Bible even tells us, Paul would later say, that everything is to be done decently and in order. If you go into a church service and, you know, it's just out of control, that is not the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, the Holy Spirit wants to move mightily among us, and again, the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion, though. 
And so we're excited when God does great things, but too often it's the emotion of men that get in the way of the moving of the Holy Spirit. And so he gives clear order. And praise God for the Christian life that he's given us order to our lives. We're not just wandering around trying to figure out how to be a Christian or how to get to heaven or what the... Praise God for his word and for the order that he's given us. So back, all the way back in in Numbers chapter 2, he had given an order that they were to march. And if you remember, the first tribe that was to go out was Judah. And again, I don't want you to look back there, but Judah led the way. Now, why was Judah put in the front of the line? Who's the, who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Jesus. And because Jesus was going to come from the tribe of Judah, Judah went out front. And if you were here seven months ago, get the tape on Numbers chapter 2 if you really want to get the details. But remember, they were carrying banners with them. Each tribe had a banner. And Judah led the way for all those that would be encamped in the south. It was Issachar and Zebulun. And they held a banner, and on that banner was a lion. Again, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Right behind them came Reuben, Sibion, Simeon, and Gad. And they had a banner with a man's face on it. Right behind them were the Levites. The Levites were, was what kind of a tribe? A what tribe? Priestly tribe. And they were the ones that cared for the tabernacle. So Judah and, and his tribes were in the front. Right behind them was Reuben. And then in the center was the tabernacle. Now behind them came the, the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. They held up a golden banner that had an ox on it. You say, Pastor, why are you telling me all this? I don't care. I, I promise it'll make sense in a minute. All right? And then the last tribe behind them was Dan. And Dan had Asher and Naphtali with them, and they held up a red and white flag with an eagle on it. So these divine marching orders, as they marched through, headed to the land of promise, and they carried the tabernacle with them. The Levites were in charge of carrying all the implements of the tabernacle. God had a divine order. Now you might wonder, what is this in the world has it got to do with anything? Well, God's divine marching orders in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10, speaking of the cherubim or angels, it says, For the likeness of them they had four faces. The face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. What four banners did we see? These exact four banners. So when we get to heaven, what we saw is they're marching with banners that are a picture of the angelic host. So not only did the Shekinah glory of God dwell on the tabernacle, but the, whole, but the angels, the angelic host, was marching with them as they went through the wilderness. Now, God had made promises to them, and they didn't understand that the kabod or the glory of God dwelt with them, but the angelic host was with them as well. They had nothing to fear. But we know that they're going to fall because of fear. In Revelation 4, it talks about the four living creatures about the crystal sea. And it says, the first living creature was like a lion, the second was like a calf, the third, or an ox. The third was, had the face of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. It's a picture of heaven. As they're marching through the wilderness... Long before Jesus came, a picture of heaven and the angelic host. So we see them marching through, but we know that this, this battle, again, is a spiritual battle. And we see this picture, again, of the angelic host being around them. Now it's interesting also that when you look at the four Gospels, the four Gospels, I believe, and this is just your pastor's opinion, so you can take it or not, but I believe that each of these animals point to one of the Gospels as well. Because you'll see in Matthew that Jesus is referred to as king and the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Mark, he's referred to as a suffering servant, or again, a beast of burden, and that would, again, pictured by the ox. Jesus is called the Son of Man repeatedly in Luke, a picture of the man. And lastly, he's referred to as the Son of God, and we know that it, it's interesting that an eagle is the only animal, it, it soars higher than any other animal, and it's the only animal that has eyes coated enough that it can stare into the brightness of the sun. 
These four animals, a picture of the Angelicos, a picture of the Gospels, a picture of God's hands being upon the children of Israel, and they don't even understand that. God gave them divine order for a reason, and sometimes we don't understand when God gives order for our lives. God gives divine order, and we go, I don't understand why I can't just do it my way. What if these guys just said, blow off what God says, let's just march however we want. You go on the front, you go on the back, you guys trade play, right? God, it was not God's plan. Now, along with marching orders, he gave them camping orders, camping instructions, right? And just, this will be a repeat for those of you who were here before, but I'm going to show you, and if you've got to understand that your pastor is, is handicapped when it comes to anything mechanical, so hopefully I can figure this out. I'm verbal, I'm not mechanical, all right? So, all right. So in the center, he gave them instructions, and this is also in Numbers chapter 2, all right? And he gives them instructions on how they are to camp. So he says, this is how you're to march. And then when you stop marching, you are to camp this way. And the first thing he told them was that east, directly east of the tabernacle, and not to be outside outside the tabernacle, but directly east and span out as far as necessary to camp all your people, was the tribe of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Total of 186,400 people. So just to the, if I do this right, I'm tape challenged. All right. So there's Judah, just to the east. You'll notice 186,400 total. These are just men over the age of 20. If you go back to the text, it's in, then next would be the, the tribe to the south. And that tribe to the south was Reuben. And so that tribe had 151,450. So again, looking down from the sky, this is what you would see. The tabernacle in the center with the tape that's just tore its name off. And then Reuben to the side and Judah to the south. And then next to the west, you would have Ephraim. And then finally, you had Dan. And they were given divine instructions on how they were to camp. And so when God looked down from heaven at the children of Israel as they encamped in the wilderness, what did he see? The cross. Now, these divine instructions were given by God because it is the cross. And because when he saw them, he saw them again. The picture of what was to come, that Jesus was going to suffer and die. And all the, all the things that happened in the tabernacle were pointing to the cross. And so as they marched, what if they, again, I don't believe that they understood they were encamped in a cross. I don't think they'd figure that out. They were just following instructions. But I do believe that it clearly, to us today, points to Jesus Christ. And again, if we go do things according to our will and we go outside of God's word, we don't fully understand how much we've missed him and how his plans are perfect, his ways are perfect, and he knows the beginning from the end. And so we see that he gave them these clear instructions. But sadly, as we know, even though they had God's presence with them and they were encamped in the cross and the, the, the angelic host was with them, and, and again, everything pointed to the Lord, they were dwelling in these tents and it was a temporary place and they're headed to the land of promise, we know that they very quickly rebelled. When we get to Numbers 26, we see that of the 603,550 men that set out toward the land of promise, only two of them were going to enter in. Because this promise was made saying, you follow my instructions, I have a plan for you. My angelic host is with you, my kabod, my glory dwells among, upon you. How did they know when it was time to move? What happened? The cloud moved. The pillar moved. And I love that because the pillar was over the tabernacle. And so what it meant was when they woke up in the morning, what is the first thing they had to do? They had to look up. Woke up in the morning and looked up. Where's the cloud? Oh, it's still there. Okay, we're good. 
If it's moving, guys, wake up. It's moving. we got to follow. You know, what a great example for us that the first thing we ought to do in the morning is look up. Amen? That we might see where the Holy Spirit is moving, that He might minister to our hearts, and that we might follow Him completely. And sadly, though, they began to look up and they started to follow, but we know that this 11-day journey turns into a 40-year death march because these guys start murmuring right off the bat. God's marching with them, the Holy Spirit, the kabod, the glory of God. They're headed to the land of promise. He's already told them, guys, you're going to be in a land flowing milk and honey. It's going to be awesome. And what happens after days they began to murmur? Oh, man, we got to walk, and this is just brutal, and I'm sick of manna, right? I mean, God's raining, you know, Krispy Kreme donuts out of the sky, and these guys are whining. I mean, literally, it was, it was sweet to the taste, and, you know, and they were just whining and complaining, and they remembered the quail that they used to have. And so they begin to march, and they begin to murmur, and we know that what happens is that, that right off the bat, that they, as they murmur, they begin to turn against God, and they have, start to have hearts of rebellion. These guys were lazy. They didn't want to march. They were ungrateful about God's provision. They were holding on to the world, wanting the leeks and onions that they had before. And when they fully, again, finally came to the land of promise, they get to the land of promise, and all the murmuring and all the complaining, and, and there's, there it is right before them, and what did they do? Did they honor God? Did they trust His Word? Did they believe what He said? They got right to the outskirts of the camp, and they looked in, and, and God said, go in and take the land. It already belongs to you. I've given it to you. And instead of going in, these lazy, ungrateful, worldly, faithless, Men were rebellious, and they, were unbe- they had unbelief in their hearts, and they're going to miss out on God's promise. What did they do? They sent spies into the land. Do you remember that? They go, go check out the land, and come and tell us what you see, because we don't trust God. And often, I hear, I hear Christians say, well, I'm going to go spy out the land. Tell me how that's scriptural. Give me, give me a verse for that. Because when they spy out the land, it doesn't work out too well. Amen. If God tells us to go, we don't have to go spy out the land, and we don't have to lay fleeces out before God. I'm going to put a fleece out. That's a lack of faith, amen? If God tells you to do something, how many times does He have to tell you? Once, amen? And so what happens here is they get to the land, and they send, ten, they send 12 spies, and guess how long they're in there? 40 days. 40 in the Bible is a number of? Of testing. So they come back, and there's 12 spies, and what do 10 of them say? There's what in the land? There's giants in the land. They're just huge. We're like grasshoppers. They're going to squash us like bugs. we got no hope. And then out come two guys, Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb say, hey, God gave it to us. Let's go get them. God's for us. Who's against? Let's go get these guys. Right? Our God is faithful. And they're carrying out huge grapes. It took the two of them to carry out grapes. It must have been the size of tennis balls or something, right? And they're carrying these grapes out on their shoulders. And they're saying, man, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. This is exactly what God had told us. But sadly, because of their fear, they did not enter in. And right there, God said, okay, 40 days you were testing me, I'm going to test you for 40 years. You're going to wander in the wilderness. 40 days you spied out the land, 40 years of wanderings coming. And so they began to wander. And he said, not anybody in that generation was going to enter into the land of promise. And so basically for 40 years, they just watched people die. I did the math. And if they died at an equivalent amount, it was 100, 100 120 people every single day that dropped dead for 40 years to get all, for all these people to die. And remember that anytime death touched them, they became unclean. And so death was all around them, and death became the focus because of their rebellion. They missed out on God's highest. They missed out on His promise. They missed out on His plan. So finally, we get up here in the, to chapter 21, and 
now the new generation is starting to be ushered in. And we remember what happened, that they, had, they finally got faced with the same Canaanites, the same enemy. God brought them right back to the same enemy that they had been afraid of before. But this time they had faith. The next generation believed. And they went in and conquered the Canaanites. And then they conquered the Amorites. And now they're encamped at the foothills of Moab. And then a man by the name of Balak, who was the king of Moab, comes out on top of the mountain. He looks down and sees three million Israelites. And he catches wind that they've smoked the Canaanites and they've smoked the Amorites. And he's like, we're next. And so he calls for this soothsayer by the name of, of Balaam. Remember that? And Balaam came and he said, I want you to curse him. And remember the donkey told him not to go and he went anyway. And he gets there and he looks down and he's unable to curse them. Because when he looked down, what did he see? He saw the cross. And you're unable to curse them when they're in the cross. Amen? Satan can't, you know, when the blood of Christ we're forgiven. Amen? And so he looks down at the cross. He's unable to curse them. And then last week we saw unable to curse them. What does he do? He comes up with a plan. And he goes to, to Balaam and says, you know, I can't, I, to Balak, I can't curse them, but I got an idea. They're guys. And I know what they'll fall for. Send your idol-worshiping women down there and they'll go for it, I promise you. So let's begin in verse 1. And we're going to look at missing out on God's promise and just how sad it is for these guys. But may we learn from these guys, who, this, this, these children who, miss out, who have missed out on His promise. And it came to pass after the plague. What was the plague? Why did the plague come? The plague came because... Balaam said, Balak, send your women down there. So these women who were temple prostitutes came marching in. Now the army couldn't get them. The fathers couldn't get them. So they sent their daughters down to get them. And the young women came marching in. And they were temple prostitutes. And they enticed the guys away. And the guys followed them. And then once they had, had slept with them, they got them to begin to worship idols. It's amazing how immorality leads to idol worship. You know, we began to start putting other things before God. And you know what? Not, there's nothing new under the sun because as these guys fell into sexual sin, they were so close. They'd already defeated the enemy. They're encamped right there. They're getting ready to cross the Jordan to go into the land of promise. And what did they do? They got drawn away by a woman. Guys, be careful. Amen? And you know, the world we live in today, we need to make sure that any relationship that we have honors God. Amen? Don't, you know, Pastor Chuck, when you go to the Senior Pastors Conference, he's got the same message, the first message, pretty much every time you go, and I love it because we need to hear it. It's touch not the money, touch not the wine, touch not the women, touch not the glory. And as a pastor, we have to remember that, and as Christians, we need to remember that. And it's too easy because we watch TV, and everybody's sleeping with everybody, right? You watch movies, you watch everything, and it's like, man, if, you're, if you've waited for your, for, to be married, you're some kind of freak. And the reality is, yeah, you're a Jesus freak, Amen? And maybe we need, we need to be making that stand and not just going with the flow and the things of the world and sadly these guys were enticed. You know, sex is a good thing in the proper context. Marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Amen? And I said one man and one woman in marriage. Amen? That's what the Bible says. That's what we believe. Now, you take fire and you put it in the fireplace. It's wonderful. It warms your house. You can cook over it. You take fire and you put it in your drapes. It's bad, right? It burns your house down. And the same is true of the physical relationship between a man and a woman. In a marriage, it's wonderful. God created it. You take it outside of marriage, it burns your house down. You start 
going outside of marriage, having adult. And here's what happens. These guys are encamped right there. They're getting ready to hand the land of promise. And you know what? Because they fell, the plague came upon them. And if you remember from last week that 24,000 guys died. And when we allow our flesh to get in charge and fulfill its lust, we have broken fellowship with God. We blow our testimony before the world. We're ineffective in ministry. May we not be desensitized to sin. Miss out on God's promise because of the immorality and idol worship. Read on. So the Lord spoke to Moses and Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saying, so Eleazar is the new high priest. Why? Because Aaron died, remember? A few chapters ago, Aaron went to be with the Lord. He has died. Eleazar, his son, is the new high priest. Verses 2 through 4. Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel, from 20 years old and above, by their father's houses, all who are able to go to war in Israel. So Moses and Eleazar the priest spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from 20 years old and above, just as the Lord commanded Moses and the children of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt. So there's going to be two things that this census is going to be prepared for. One is warfare and one is welfare. It's going to be for the warfare for the young men 20 years of age and older because even though they're headed into the land of promise, guess what's waiting for them in the land of promise? What's waiting for them? Giants. Are they still there? Yes, they are. Understand that as Christians, often the crossing over the Jordan into the, to the land of promise has been compared to the Spirit-filled life. You know, the Red Sea, or out of bondage in Egypt being salvation, crossing over the Jordan River, being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And even when we're filled with the Spirit of the living God, we still face trials on the other side. Amen? And so they go through, they pass over into the land of promise, and there's going to be battles waiting for them. And so they number these men. But it also is a reflection yet again of God's faithfulness that even while they're wandering in the wilderness, that God continued to raise up a mighty army. Even while they were in rebellion. But we're also going to see that in the rebellion that they did not grow. And then lastly, we're going to see that it, in the very last part of the chapter that it's for welfare. And what I mean by that is it determines uh, which land would belong to who and how much of each land. And again, God's ways are perfect, the sovereignty is perfect, and He knows, again, exactly how to care for His people. So the second census was necessary. Why? Because nobody from the first census was getting in. That, that huge number, 603,550, all going to die with the exception of two people. So now he's actually having to raise up an entire new army of young men. Young men who were, who were very small and now had grown into young men who were under the age of 20 who now were going to become this mighty army. army. Verse 5. So let's begin looking at each of these tribes and again reveal God's faithfulness to fulfill His promise to Abraham. Reuben was the firstborn of Israel. The children of Reuben... of were of Hanak, the family of his, of Hananites, uh, my, my Bible cuts that word in half at a bad spot, of Palu, of the family of the Paluites, of Hezron, the family of the Hezronites, of Carmi, and the family of Carmites. These are the families of the Reubenites. And there were numbered with them 43,730. Now the number of Reubenites decreased during this time. Now you might wonder, why did the number of the Reubenites... Now Reuben was the oldest son. Did Reuben get the blessing from Jacob? What's the answer? No. Why not? What did Reuben do, among many things? He slept with one of his father's concubines. There's so many problems with that sentence, it's not even, it scares me. His father has a concubine, which isn't good. 
and that he slept with his father's concubine, which is really bad. So where did he learn the example of having more than one from his dad? But then his dad doesn't bless him because of it, but he was in rebellion. And so Reuben's tribe got smaller during this time, even though he should have been the one of the ones most blessed. But look, it says here in verse 8 and 9. And the son of Pelu was Eliab, and Eliab, and the sons of Eliab were Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram. Where have we heard those names before? This is the Dathan and Abiram, representatives of the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. Earlier in Numbers, Dathan, Abiram, and Korah come and make a challenge against Moses and Aaron. And basically, they make three accusations against them. They say, you've served too long. You're no better than anybody else. And you know what? Uh, we're, we're as holy as you guys are. And we should, be, we should be in charge, not you anymore. You've had your turn. It's our turn. Now, I find it interesting that what tribe are Dathan and Abiram from? The tribe of Reuben. Reuben is the oldest. Reuben is the one that had he been following God, would have received the birthright. But because he did not, it fell to another of the sons. And so we see here that these guys are still holding on to the physical things. And they still want to be in charge. And they refuse to submit. And so what they did is they tried to stir up the crowd. These men were not satisfied with God's calling on their own life. So they began to pursue a position. And they were not only, again, questioning Moses and Aaron's authority, but they were rebelling against God. Look at verse 10. And the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up together. How did God feel about them challenging Moses? Not too good. These guys come and they say, you know, Moses, you know, we've had enough of you. You've been leading us for a while and, man, you know, we're, all this manna and stuff. And, you know, we didn't get to enter the land of promise, which certainly wasn't Moses' fault. But they're, they're murmuring against him. And so what they do is they go and they get the, the congregation to come against Moses. And so these, these three men go and they go out and they get 250 men of renown to stand up with them. Men of great intellect. Men of great authority. And so these 253 men mount up against Moses and Aaron and then they get the rest of the congregation to, to gather up together at the tabernacle to come against them. And they think because they've got them outnumbered, they're on the right side. Well, if you look around in the world we live in today, guess what? The majority is not right. Amen? The majority is not right. You know what? I, I'm, it's really hard to get... I was lit up last night when I saw that yet again they've overturned late, you know, this late-term abortion, what's it called? Partial birth abortion. It was banned, and now by our, our, our uh, senators, our judiciary, right? And they, they banned it, and one judge out of San Francisco comes back and turns it all over and makes it legal again. Now, if you know what partial birth abortion is, you basically partially give birth to the baby and then stick something in its head and kill it. Now, who are the doctors doing this? That's what I want to know makes me angry. And you know, here we are, we live, what kind of country, world do we live in? Our elected officials to get rid of it, and one judge comes along and says, oh no, and that's the world we're living in today. It's godless. And the majority is not right. Amen? The Bible says, broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to righteousness. And that means that we're going to be outnumbered if we're standing for God. But if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? And we need to understand that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And so these guys come marching up with their 253 guys against Moses and Aaron. 
and then they get some other guys, they basically get the congregation to mount up against them. They just forgot one thing. God's on Moses' side. And God proves it real quick. He tells the congregation of people, uh, I think you might want to move away from those guys. Seriously, it's what it says. Look at the text. You might want to move away from them. And the people move away, and they, go, and they all fall into the ground. Now, the other 250 guys that were standing there, guess what happened to them? They were standing there with censers to make worship before God, and they were not called to do that. They were not priests. And what happened to them? God brought fire out of the sky and smoked them. I think God made his point. Here's the reality. We are to honor God, and we are to follow Him, and we're to submit to the authorities that He has placed over us, and we're not to try to usurp that authority and get together and vote. Praise God we don't have congregational rule. Amen? Because you know what? Anytime you see congregational rule in the Bible, it doesn't work out too well. Well, they gotten rid of Moses a bunch of times? Without question. I think, get him out of here, right? You know what the head of this church is? Jesus Christ. Amen? His word is the authority. It's the final court of arbitration, and we don't have bylaws or anything else that, that supersedes this book right here. Amen? And that's why God's word, that's what we follow. And he's the one who's the head of the church. And Moses, and, and, and they're greatly outnumbered, but again, God is for them, and God's glory appeared. It says there that as the glory appeared, and then the earth opened up and swallowed them. Promote yourself, strive for position, refuse to submit authority, and you're going to end up getting fired. Right? I mean, that's what happened here. And you know what else happens too? I truly believe that when you promote yourself, that you, that's where people end up getting burnt out and depressed. Because they're just trying to make things happen for themselves, and before you know it, they're overwhelmed. And, you know, and man, stop striving. You know, that's one of the things that God's been teaching me for years. No striving. If I have to strive to get it, I'll have to strive to keep it. Amen? If I, if I have to you know, muscle it up, man, why don't I just trust in the Lord and just go with Him? Get in, get in line and say, what's the marching orders, Lord? Yes, Lord. Instead of looking for a new way and a new path. And sadly, these guys were swallowed up. Why? They got fired literally because they began to rebel against God. And because they did not honor the authority placed over them. Verse 11. Nevertheless, the children of Korah did not die. And I like this because the kids of Korah did not die in the plague. They weren't doomed by a dysfunctional family, as the world would tell you today. Instead, you know what these guys became? worship leaders. Of the Psalms, 11 of them are written by the Korathites. So literally the children of Korah, who was swallowed up in the ground, ended up being worship leaders. And they didn't have to turn to the world. They didn't go to a psychiatrist. They pressed into the kingdom. Amen? They were struggling and they just turned to the Lord. Who's the great physician? Amen? It's the Lord. And we don't need to turn to anything else. Turn to God. He's faithful. And so they pressed into the kingdom, and even though their father... So if you're here today and you're saying, man, well, my dad was, was no good. You know, let me, can I tell you something? Every family in the history of the world has been dysfunctional because the word is sin. Amen? And every family is sinful. Cain killed Abel. That was the first family. Amen? That was the first brother, two brothers. One of them killed the other one. There's nothing new under the sun. And too often we want to blame, well, my mom, my parents. But, hey, you know what? You may have come from difficulty, but I want you to know that our God is greater than that. Amen? And our God can take you out of that. Joseph was thrown into a pit by his brothers. Amen? Daniel was ripped from his family as a young boy and taken away to a faraway land and became an indentured slave to a king. And how did that turn out? 
turn out great. Why? Because he purposed in his heart to serve the Lord. And the Kohathites, these young children, purposed in their heart to serve God. They end up writing psalms. They end up being worship leaders. God can still use you. No matter what's gone on in your past, trust the Lord. You can be a new creation in Him. We're going to move through these fairly quickly. Now the sons of Simeon. The sons of Simeon, according to their families, were Nemuel. The family of the Nemuelites were Jamin, and the family of the Jamanites of the Jashin, and the family of Jashinites and of Zerah, and the family of the Zarites. Man, challenging your pastor. And Sheol, the family of the Shalites. These are the families of the Simeonites, 22,200. Guess what happened to the Simeonites? The first census, there was 59,300 of them. Now there's 22,000. What happened? The Simeonites, what did they do? What were they guilty of? Last chapter, remember Zimri? Zimri's name means remember me. and It would be good for us to remember him. What did Zimri do? The people began to weep because the plague came upon them because they had been sleeping with the, the Moabite and Midianite uh, women. They've been sleeping with these women who were enticing them into idol worship. And everybody's mourning and weeping and repenting, and Zimri comes walking in with Cosby, right? Remember that from last week? Comes walking in with Cosby in his hand, a Midianite woman who's a temple prostitute, and he walks in in front of Moses and everybody, and like, yeah, right, I brought her home, what are you going to do about it? And there's a young man there by the name of Phineas. What does Phineas pick up? A spear. And they got the point, right? Quickly. Literally, he followed them into their tent and nailed them to the wall. Why? Because God has called us to cleanse the tent, amen? To not allow the sin run rapid in our homes. And here he was, he saw them mocking God and just sinning openly, and he went in and he put a spear through them. The Simeonites shrunk massively. They had the greatest amount of decrease by far. And I don't think it's by chance because their leader was a man that was falling into immorality and rebellion. And because of that, I truly believe that those who were following him, more than likely, most of them followed with him. And there were 24,000 who died of the plague, and it could be that most of them, or maybe even all of them, were Simeonites. Because their very leader was leading them down that path. That's why, guys, we don't follow man, we follow the Lord. Amen? Because men will fail us. Men will get us off the path. That's why God's word's got to be the authority. A man will get up and start teaching you something. If you just blindly follow a man and you don't check it out against God's word, you're going to fall into a trap. And that's what happened with them. Verse 15 through 18, Gad. The sons of Gad, according to their families, were Zephon, the family of the Zephonites, and Haggai, the the family of the Haggites, and Shunai, the family of the Shunites, and Ozni, the family of the Oznites, and Eri, the family of the Erites, and Erod, Arod, he's in the Bible. And Arod, the family of the Aradites, of Ariel, and the family of the Aralites. These were the families of the sons of Gad, according to those who were numbered of them, 40,500. Now their number also decreased. Now isn't it interesting that all three of the tribes that were hooked up with Reuben shrunk, shrunk big time. Bad company corrupts good morals. You hang around with people that are godless, you're going to become godless. The Bible, Bible tells us, again, that we become like those we hang out with. And you want to know what kind of person you are? Look at your friends. Because you're going to gravitate toward people who are like-minded. And if you're so in love with the Lord, you're going to look for people that are like-minded. And if all your friends are partiers and out of control and walking away from God, and those are the people you love to spend your time with, you're either there or headed in that direction. Now, I want to say this. We're not holier than thou. We're not self-righteous. We don't look down on those people. We love them because the Lord loves them. Amen? 
and our hearts should break for them. We minister to them, we have no fellowship with them. And so we see this entire camp starts falling apart and they begin to shrink and, are, and go through incredible difficulty because they've taken their eyes off of God. Verse 19 through 22, we see there the tribe of Judah. Now Judah was a blessed tribe because again, who came out of the tribe of Judah? Jesus. And I'm just not going to read all the names. Yeah, I know you guys will forgive me. But Judah, we see here that Judah, it says the families of Judah according to those numbered were 76,500. So it actually grew from 74,600 to 76,500. Going down to verse 25, Issachar went from 54,400 to 64,300. And then Zebulun also went from 57,400 to 60,500. Three tribes of the southern camp all increased in the midst of rebellion. Everybody's rebelling around them, and their tribe grew. You know what that tells me? That tells me that you and I can grow in the midst of rebellion. We can live in a perverse and rebellious generation, and you and I can continue to grow spiritually if we'll just keep our eyes on God. Amen? The world around us can be falling apart. They can turn their back on the Lord. But we can still follow Him. We can still serve Him. We continue to grow in the midst of a perverse and rebellious generation. It says of, J of, of Judah, I want to say one last thing about them. It said in Genesis that Jacob's blessing, speaking about his children, he says, Judah, you are he of whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemy. Your father's children shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh, which is Messiah, comes. He said, you're going to be blessed above everybody else because you're going to be the one through whom I bring the Messiah. You're leading the way and you're going to be blessed. My hand's upon you. God's sovereign blessing upon Judah, again, in the midst of rebellion. Then we move on to verse 28 through 37, and we're going to look at the sons of Joseph. Now, verses 28 through 34 speak of Manasseh. Remember that Joseph's tribe, remember that Joseph was the one son who continued to serve God. Remember in Egypt? And he blessed his family, and he forgave them. Remember that his tribe was broken into true. His two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Why? Because the tribe of Levi became what? What did they become? The priest. And they were given no inheritance. So there needed to be a tribe to replace them. And Joseph, the line of Joseph was broken into two. And Manasseh grew from 32,200 to 52,700. Ephraim went from 40,500 to 32,500. And then lastly, down in verse 41, Benjamin went from 35,400 to 45,600. So again, we see growth in the sons of Joseph. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. Again, it's interesting that when they shrink, they tend to shrink together. When they grow, they tend to grow together. You know, the people we hang out with, we're going to be growing spiritually together, or we're going to be falling away from the Lord together. I've said it before, Christianity is like a grease pole, either climbing up or sliding down, right? There's no such thing as a stagnant walk with God. There's, you're either falling away or you're getting closer. You're either hungering and thirsting for Him, or you're kind of chilling on your walk right now, and you're not doing what you should. You're not hungry for him. And then lastly, we see in verse 42 and 43, the tribe of Dan that grew, the 64,400, the tribe of Asher that grew, and then the tribe of Naphtali that went down to 45,000. The total number of the children of Israel in verse 51 is 603,550 before, and it's gone down to 601,730. Now, in the midst of them wandering in the wilderness and being in rebellion and people dropping dead all around them, God, by His faithfulness and His covenant to Abraham, allowed them to survive. And the number is almost exactly the same. 
It shows, again, God preserving his covenant. But you'll notice that they didn't grow, and I believe there's significance behind that. That as a nation, they didn't grow because, again, as the church as a whole is in rebellion, the church as a whole will not grow. There may be individuals who will, but the church will not. Amen? If we don't get our eyes back on the Lord and start making him the passion of our life and seeking first the kingdom of God and stop watering down the gospel, God's faithfulness to his covenant again as the population remained about the same in size. So now we've seen the warfare. We've got 601,730 young men over the age of 20 getting ready to march into the land of promise. God's hand is upon them. Now let's look at the welfare, verse 52. And it says in verse 52, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, To these the land shall be divided as an inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a larger inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to those who are numbered of them. So the larger tribes got a larger inheritance. It says in the Bible, to those who have been, been given much, much more will be given. Now, that is not a get-rich-quick scheme. You hear pastors using it that way, right? If you have a lot of money, you're going to be given more, right? And all this planting seeds and stuff, that's so contrary to the Word of God. The Bible says that we cannot serve God in mammon. Amen? The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, money is okay if we understand it's all God's and we use it for His glory. God, it's okay that we have a house to live in and food to eat and, you know, it's, and it's okay. But we need to make sure that we possess our possessions, they don't possess us. We need to make sure that the money we understand is all belongs to the Lord and we use it for His glory and not for ours. And so we see here that, it's, that the larger tribes were given the larger inheritance because it was God's way of caring for them because they had more people. But I also believe that because of their faithfulness, God get, was going to give them even greater opportunity to grow. And I believe it's a picture for each one of us that the more faithful that you and I are with the gifts God has given us, the more God will entrust to us. You know what, I, I, you've heard me say this before and I'll say it again. You know what I look for in leadership in the church? I look for someone first with a servant's heart. By far, first. Why? Because if somebody's willing to just be a servant, God's going to bless that and He's going to add to the gifts that, they, that He's given them. If they just love to serve, they love to put chairs away. You know what I mean? They love to come in and help out. They find out there's somebody hurting at church. They want to go bless them. They want to go minister to them. They just, and it's not a have to. It's not a, oh man, is it my turn to be in the nursery? What a drag. Not like that. They're like, man, what a joy that I get to serve. What a privilege. What a blessing. And you know what happens? I watch people with that joy and every single time they grow. I've never seen anybody that has a joy to serve that doesn't grow into even greater and deeper gifts and is used even more by the kingdom of God. Happens every time. We've got a few of our pastors that the first thing I saw was a servant's heart. And at the time, I've, I'm going to confess to you openly, I'd heard them teach the Word, and they could teach it adequately, but man, have they grown. I mean, I'm on Friday morning going, whoa, these guys are awesome Bible teachers, incredible. I better not let them teach on Sunday, they won't let me teach anymore, right? I mean, these guys are gifted. But why does it happen? It starts with a servant's heart. And as they serve with their whole heart, then their other gifts begin to grow. And I believe that God is the same way with us. Take what's in your hand and use it for God's glory, and God will use you more. Amen? And it's not a get-rich-quick scheme of, you know, spend my money and God will give me. No, it's use the gifts for His glory, give, give my life away, and God will use it even more. I know for me, it started with just a burden to get there early and help with the setup team at Calvary Lancaster. And then as I did that for a while, I had a burden to do more. 
And my wife and I got involved in the children's ministry. And there wasn't long after that that our pastor started a discipleship group. And I thought, you know, I had to go to that. I know God wants to do more with me. And another month went by and he asked me to be the youth pastor. And I said, me? I can't do that. And I can't do that. But with Christ, I can do all things. Amen? And I went in there and God let me start ministering to the youth. And before I knew it, the youth group. And then I'm teaching on Sundays and I'm doing the men's study and I'm teaching the prayer. How did this happen? It happened by just showing up and start setting up some chairs. And just saying, Lord, use my life. However you want. Now, you might say, I'm going to send him no chairs. I ain't going to be no pastor, right? Now, I'm not saying God's going to do that to you. I'm just saying, you know, may we be available to let God use us however he wants. Amen? And the way that he wants to use you, it will be a get-to. You'll be so stoked to do it. It'll be a joy. Not a have-to, not a bummer, not a drudgery. It'll be a blessing. And this is a word of encouragement, again, to use the gifts right where we are. Verse 55. But the land shall be divided by lot. This is not Abraham's lot. This is by casting lots. They shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the lot, their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller. The size is determined by the size of the tribe, but the location will be determined by lots or God's sovereignty. They had to think all the Urim and the Thummim, probably what they did. And they pulled it out and would determine who got which lot. Now again, the lot size was determined by the size of the tribe, but the place where they were called to go was basically determined by the sovereignty of God. God is the one who chooses and decides where we belong. Amen? And may we just listen to his voice and say, Lord, where do you want me? And then go there. You know, I have to confess to you, I've told you this before, this is the last place I ever thought I'd be pastoring a church. No, no way. I went in to meet with Pastor Don and said, Pastor Don, it's time for me to go. I'll go anywhere in the country. He started naming cities North Carolina, uh, you know, Tracy, all these different places. I'm like, okay, it's in Santa Cruz. Oh, I can't go there. I said yes to everything but Santa Cruz. Well, that's where God has me, amen? And I want to tell you, I'm not leaving. Because now I know that I know that I know that this is where God called me to be. And there's no greater peace than being exactly where God wants you to be, exactly when He wants you to be there. And don't move unless God moves you, amen? Too often we're moved by our circumstances. Well, grass looks a little greener over there. Real estate's cheaper down here. I get a little bit better job over here. Again, maybe God will move you that way, but you make sure you're heard from the Lord and it isn't just your circumstances blowing you to another town, amen? We've got plenty of people that can give you a testimony about that. Verse 57. Lastly, the Levites. Now take a look at this tribe. And there were those who were numbered of the Levites according to their families of Gershon, the family of the Gershonites, of Kohathites, the family of the Kohathites, the, of Merar, the family of the Merarites. Remember these three families? Remember how God gave them specific tasks? You guys remember that? The, the Kohathites were in charge of the furnishings. They were never to touch them or look on them. The priest, the actual priest would cover them and they were to carry them. The Merarites were in charge of the boards and the pillars and the sockets. And the Gershonites were in charge of the curtains and the coverings. This was the first setup crew right here. These guys are the first guys to show up early for church and set up, right? What these guys did was every time the cloud moved, what did they have to do? Take everything down, kind of like Sunday or Wednesday night around here. Take everything down, put it on the carts. No, take everything down. And they literally would then carry it to the next place and reassemble it every single time the cloud moved. And you know what's interesting? If every single one of them didn't do what they were called to do, there was no way there could be sacrifice or worship. Why? Because you needed the Gershonites and the Kohathites and the Merarites. They all had different callings. The Bible says, you know, if we're all an eye, where would be the hearing? Amen? We need eyes and ears and mouths and feet and hands. And we're all called and we're all gifted in different ways. And you have gifts that I don't have. And when you come and use your gift, it allows everyone else to use their gifts. 
And I prayed, God, bring the servants first. You guys showed up. You must be them. Amen? And we have a church filled with servants, and it's a blessing. But I love the fact that God called them all to minister together. But not all the Levites were doing so well. Look, take a look here in verse 58. And the families of the Levites, the family of the Libnites and the Hebronites, and the family of the Mahalites, and the family of the Mushites, and the family of the Korathites, and Koath begat Amram. The name of Amram's wife was Joshebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. And to Amram she bore Aaron, Moses, and their sister Miriam. So this just proves again that Aaron was of the priestly line of the Levites. To Aaron were born Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Nadab and Abihu. Who remembers them? What kind of guys were they? How'd they do? They do real well or bad? What'd they do? They, they got fired big time. Nadab and Abihu, who are these guys? They're in the genealogy, and they would have been in line ahead of Eleazar to be the high priest. Nadab would have been the next high priest. But look what happens. Look at verse 60 and 61. Nadab and Abihu died when they offered profane fire before the Lord. Now what happened, if you go back again and look in earlier text in Leviticus chapter 10, we see God's swift judgment upon these guys. Their names mean free gift of God, and he is my father. So obviously they had Aaron, a godly father. And these guys were priests, called by God to intercede on behalf of God's people. And they were to be the ones that represented God to the people and the people to God. And they took this censer that was only to be taken by the, by the priest. And where was the fire to come from? Only one place where? Who remembers? The altar. They had to get the fire from the altar. The altar is a picture of what? Boy, we're losing it. The altar is a picture of what? The cross. Amen? Remember, the altar had four points on it. Four points, the blood of the animal was placed on it. A, a human body could fit on it perfectly. Jesus bled from four points, right? And they had to take the fire from the altar, a picture of the cross. And they took that censer, and that censer, a picture of the prayers of the people. And they could only bring that into the Holy of Holies. When? On the specific day of atonement. And if they brought it in any other time or with any other fire, you know, tried to get there with a fire that didn't come from the cross. I'm going to get there on my good works. I'm going to get there by some other false god. And so what happened was Nadab and Abihu started their own fire, and the two of them, on a day not appointed, went in together into the holy place. And what did God do to them? He smoked them. Why? Because they were doing it their own way. They decided, we're going to go in, and, and hey, we got this position. They, they took this strange fire and took it into the holy place. Again, they were not even high priest. They were not called to do that. And they tried to approach God some way other than the atoning work of the cross. If you try to reach God any other way than the atoning work of the cross, you're going to get the Nadab and Abihu treatment. Amen? A fire's coming. Hell's a real place, you guys. And you know what? It breaks my heart to think about anybody going there. But sadly, people, while we've been sitting here, thousands have gone. And you know what? Hell is not... Two days from now, two years from now, 200 years from now, 2,000 years from now, 2 million years from now, 2 billion years from now, the people that are suffering now are going to be suffering then. And our hearts should be broken for that. Every saved person this side of heaven should be burned for every unsaved person this side of hell. And we see here that when we try to approach God in any other way but through the cross, Nadab and Abihu tried to come their own way. They didn't bring the fire from the altar, they brought their own fire. They didn't come into the holy place on the appointed day, the day of atonement, they tried to come their own way. And we see that swift judgment came upon them. And you know what? I believe for ministry, this tells us something too. That you and I need to keep our eyes on the cross and be motivated 
out of our love for God. Nothing else when it comes to ministry. Because you know what? If you're motivated by anything else, you're going to complain, you're going to feel unappreciated, and you're going to burn out. If you're motivated because you want the praise of men, the day that the men stop praising you, you're going to feel unappreciated. If you're doing it so people will notice you and they don't notice you, you're going to be bummed out. And if you're doing it because you want to act, it's not going to last. But if you're doing it because you love the Lord, and your eyes are on Him, and you're saying, Lord, how can I serve you? Lord, you're going to let me clean the bathrooms for you. Praise the Lord. Amen? That should be our heart. Lord, whatever I do, do it as unto you. Last two verses. Or verse 62, excuse me. Now these were numbered of them, 23,000, every male from a month old and above. For they were not numbered among the other children of Israel because they had no inheritance given to them among the children of Israel. I find it interesting that the priests had no inheritance. And I actually think that's awesome. Because you know what? They had no ties to the land whatsoever. None. Their whole passion and focus was what? Serving God. Serving the people. And they had to trust in the people to minister to them. The people had to minister to their physical needs that the priests might minister to their spiritual needs. And so it was a blessing. And they had no inheritance in the land. And it's interesting that they were not wiped out under the same judgment because they had no inheritance and they didn't fall into the same traps. Last two verses. These are those who were numbered by Moses and Eleazar, the priests who numbered the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. But among these, there was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses, the priest, when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. So every man 20 years older, old and above died because of rebellion and unbelief. Now in the last verse, we're going to see an exception to that rule. Let's take a look. For the Lord has said to them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. So there was not left a man of them except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, why do Joshua and Caleb get to enter in when nobody else does? They brought the good report. They went into the land of promise and they came back and what did they say? God's on our side, let's get them. Amen? And I love that Joshua and Caleb... When ten came back, they were outnumbered. They shared the truth anyway. God promised it to us. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. We shouldn't be scared. It doesn't matter who they are. In Numbers 13, then Caleb quieted the people and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we're able to overcome it. Two had faith, and ten filled them with doubt and fear. And they began to mock Joshua, and they mocked Caleb, and they wanted to elect a leader and go back. But Joshua and Caleb remained faithful. You ever feel outnumbered being a Christian at work? You ever felt numbered being a Christian at school? You ever felt numbered? Welcome to the club. That means God wants to use you. Amen? Now, one last thing I want you to see about this, too. Because of their rebellion, they wandered in the wilderness, but these two, because of their faithfulness, would enter into the land of promise. But Joshua's name, what's his name in the original language? It's Yeshua, which is what? Jesus. It's a transliteration of Jesus. Moses is a picture of the law, right? He gave us the law, and Moses could not take them into the land of promise. Because the law cannot get you into the land of promise. Amen? Moses can't get you there. Keeping the law can't get you there. The law reveals your sin and a need for a Savior. But Joshua, same name as Jesus, is the one who could deliver them in to the land of promise. The law can't get us there, but Jesus has and can. Amen? Through His shed blood on the cross. He's the one that can deliver us in. So Moses, the law cannot bring you in. So in closing, missing out on God's promises. 
Because of rebellion and unbelief, an entire generation wandered in the wilderness. Because of immorality, Zimri and 24,000 others fell into idol worship and got the point. Dathan, Abiram, and Korah, because of self-promotion and pride and lack of submission, were swallowed up by the earth. Nadab and Abihu, because of their strange fire and their attempt to come to God apart from the cross in their own way, were fired. But Joshua and Caleb, faithful in the midst of a faithless generation, God blessed them, He used them mightily, and they were able to enter into the land of promise. You know what, guys? We can fall for the immorality that's around us. We can be desensitized to sin. We can be self-promoting and prideful and lack submission and be like Dathan and Abiram and Korah. We can be like Nadab and Abihu and try to come before God our own way and our own time on our own path. Or we can be like Joshua and Caleb. And we can say, Lord, we trust your word. You told us we believe you. We believe your promises even if nobody else believes it. Even if three million people deny it, we believe you. We trust you. And we're going to follow you. Amen? Santa Cruz needs some folks like that. Amen? And may we be a room full of Joshua and Caleb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, again, that even in the numbering of your people, even in the way that they march, Lord, it was all a part of your perfect plan to point us to the Savior. Lord, we thank you again that because we are encamped in the cross and the Holy Spirit dwells within us, that we have the promise of heaven. And Lord, that we know that we know that we know that we're going to spend eternity with you. Lord, I pray until then, may we be found faithful. May our heart break for the lost. And Lord, may we not compromise with the sins of this world, but Lord, may we be focused on you, passionate about you, with a heart to serve you. And Lord, I thank you and praise you for each person who's here. Lord, just help us, Lord, when when the difficulties come, not to get our eyes on our circumstances like the children wandering in the wilderness, but Lord, keep our eyes looking up to the cloud looking up to you and following you with our whole hearts. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand and close a worship song.